So how many of you know what's in your Bible? If you're there, turn to that, Nahum. Nahum's interesting, and in, in, especially in those times, names were important. The meaning of those names in the Hebrew always seemed to have a real impact on the people who were named this and that, and God seemed to always pick people to do something for him in terms of ministry, and their name seemed to be relevant almost every time. Now, Nahum, his name means consolation or full of comfort. Now, if you read the book of Nahum, it's short three chapters, and that name you go, full of comfort and consolation? If you read it, that name only works that way for certain people. And for other people, there's no consolation, no comfort whatsoever. And if you read through the book of Nahum quickly, you may only focus on the real wrath and vengeance of God and miss the consolation and comfort that's going to be talked about. Time frame, about 620 B.C., 620 years before Christ. And I tell you that because it's significant when we're going to be comparing this to one we've covered earlier, the book of Jonah. So we'll, I'll refer to that in just a moment. But I, I like to give us a little bit of context of the history of what's going on at that time. There are other prophets speaking. The nation of Israel has been divided into two parts, as we said last week. The northern part was called Israel. The southern part was called Judah. And Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the power of the day. And there seemed to be throughout history certain empires that raised up. And more often than not, they all didn't like Israel or Judah, either one. And at this time, the Assyrians were in charge of most of that part of the world. And they were a vicious, violent, vile, evil people. And the capital city was Nineveh. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Jonah, Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the same city. So this place, this, this empire, as I said, had already conquered the northern kingdom, and they were constantly harassing Judah, the southern kingdom. And Judah, the people of Judah, were at this place, and I think we need to understand this to see the significance of Nahum's name, full of comfort and consolation. Judah was looking at this and thinking, God, we're serving the living God. But look what's going on. We're constantly being beaten down. We're constantly being fearful of the Assyrians. They're sending out their warring parties continuously. We're continually under threat. God, where are you? God, do you hear our pleas? God, what are you doing? Have you forsaken us completely? We're looking at this evil Assyrians and they are prospering. They are wealthy. They are powerful. And here we are. Are all your promises just empty words? Don't they mean anything to your people? The spiritual life of Judah was diminishing severely because of what was going on in the, the, the outside crises, if you would, in the world at that time. And in a sense, we even as a people could maybe relate to what's going on around the world in our own nation. All of this chaos, 
all of this darkness, all of this evil, and yet that seems to be prospering while God's people in the church, spiritual life even seems to be diminishing. So when this prophetic word of Jonah, when, or Jonah, when, when Nahum is raised up, this is what he is being raised up to speak these words into. And what he is really doing, he is speaking these words to Judah, and it's as if he's saying, guys, it's been tough. God even allowed the Assyrians to bring discipline to his people. But they went way too far, and I've had it with them. I am going to bring my wrath and vengeance upon them and defeat them, even though it looks impossible. But I'm going to protect you because you're my people. And that's the consolation and the significance of the name in my mind is he's speaking consolation and words of comfort to Judah. But boy, oh boy, when you read through the book, the other aspect of God causes you to maybe question, which God is this? The book of Nahum is kind of a sequel. Everybody knows what a sequel is, right? Somebody writes a good book, it goes over so well, they write another one, and it's kind of the sequel, the continuing story, the continuing saga. Movies, the same way. I mean, my goodness, when I was young, there was a movie called Star Wars. How many Star Wars movies have there been since then? There's a sequel after a sequel after a sequel, and they, they've run out of sequels in the future, so they go back and now they start sequels, pre-sequels. And this is kind of what's happening here with the book of Nahum. If you remember the book of Jonah, it started out in verse 2 of chapter 1 saying, God has noticed the wickedness of Nineveh. And as you read through the book of Jonah, it says 40 days. You you all know the story. He was swallowed into a fish because he didn't want to go deliver this message. And the message was, in 40 days, God's going to bring destruction upon you. And he didn't want to do that because he thought they were evil and needed to be struck by lightning and fire and turned into a block of salt or something. But he says later in the book, he says, I, I knew you'd do that. I knew they'd repent. I knew they'd repent. And as we read in the book of Jonah, when he finally did get thrown up by the fish and he went to Nineveh and he walked through the city of Nineveh proclaiming in 40 days, the people repented. Even the king of Nineveh repented. They covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes as a sign of their repentance and grief about their evil sins. And not only that, it says they even covered the animals with sackcloth and ashes. And they turned from their wicked ways. And the king proclaimed, he says, this is what we've got to do because who knows? Maybe, maybe God will relent and he won't destroy Nineveh. And of course, that's what happened. And then, of course, Jonah didn't like that. He says, yeah, I knew it. Why did he know it? Because he knew he was, God was a loving God. And God wants to demonstrate his mercy and his grace. That was 150 years before Nahum. So now in the sequel, 150 years have passed. 150 years. There's been many kings since the king that led repentance in his nation. Many generations, people have forgotten and they have returned to their evil ways, to their wickedness, to their brutality. And God says, enough is enough. He had originally used the Assyrians, actually, 
to bring discipline upon his chosen people, the nations of Israel, Israel and Judah. But their evil had surpassed anything that God would allow. And he says, enough is enough. So he's going to bring this destruction, but what about God's people, Judah? As this destruction comes, what about Judah? And what really the big message of Nahum is, and this is kind of the message that I want us to see more than anything else you can get distracted by, is that people who arrogantly ignore God, resist God's will, are going to taste his wrath. But those who trust him will be saved by his love. So the message title this morning is, Which God Is It? And when we look at Nahum, it can almost be confusing when we look at this. Which God is it? What is this God really like? It starts out in Nahum verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. And then verse 2 says, He's a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and He is wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. A vengeful, wrathful God. And He demonstrates that to His adversaries and enemies. God has enemies. God has adversaries. And He's very clear that one day His wrath is going to come upon those who willingly and arrogantly reject him. And that wrath is going to be complete. He's a jealous God, an avenging God. God's jealousy in one sense, he can be jealous for his people. It's a good thing. He loves his people. He's jealous for his people. He wants his people to worship him. He wants his people to be blessed. He's a very jealous God. But also on the other side, his jealousy, when it's jealous for his people, those that are tormenting and attacking his people, his rage, his vengeance will be manifested. God will protect his people. And in verse 3, all of a sudden, the next verse says, the Lord is slow to anger. He is great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a world in a storm, his clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The Lord is slow to anger. He is great in power. It's like, which is he? Is he vengeful? Is he wrathful? Or is he slow to anger? Is he a loving God? Is he a kind God? He had shown mercy to Nineveh 150 years before Nahum. He was slow to anger. His mercy was demonstrated instead of his wrath. 150 years have passed. And now we see this vengeful God who is going to bring wrath upon his enemies. But right away in verse 3, he's slow to anger. Brings to mind the, the words of Jonah. I knew it. I knew it. Why did he know it? Because he knew the kind and merciful and loving God. And he knew if the people repented, he would be long-suffering and patient with them. And he had waited, and he was patient for 150 years. Verse 7, still in chapter 1, it says, The Lord is good. 
He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He's vengeful, he's rashful, filled with wrath, jealousy. But he's good. And what he's saying here, even in the midst of his judgment, when his judgment comes, he will protect his people. He will be a stronghold even in the midst of him pouring out his judgment. He will be a stronghold when evil is all around us. He will be a stronghold when we are under attack by the enemy. God will protect his people. And I think these are words and things that were not only true for the time of Nahum and the ministry that was in specifically for Judah, they're also true for us. We are surrounded by evil. Evil seems to be abounding and and succeeding and winning. Even in our personal attacks, when the enemy comes against us, when we are going through troubles and darkness and difficulties, not only because of, not necessarily because of our own personal sin, but because we live in a sinful world. There's darkness all around it. God is a faithful God. He is a stronghold. He's a strong tower. He's a safe place. He will rescue and protect his people. So what kind of God is he? Which God is he? The vengeful, wrathful God or the long-suffering good God that we all want to talk about? Well, the answer really depends upon us. The answer depends upon the people. And in this case, we have two different groups of people, Judah and Assyria. Which type of God is he? It depends on them. It depends on what your attitude or view of God is and how you respond to him because of that attitude and view. Is he truly God? Is his word truly the word of God? Are his promises true and is he faithful to his word? Or do we believe the lie that it's all about us? Whatever we want to do, whatever, whatever makes us feel good, do it. What's our view of God? That will determine which God it is. If we view God as a kind and loving God, but yet He is the sovereign God. He is our creator God. He is a God worthy of awe and wonder. He is a God who sacrificed His Son that we might have life. And He asked us to surrender our lives to Him. Not that we have less of a life, but that we may have the fullness of His blessings as we surrender our lives to Him. To that kind of person, He is that God who is patient, long-suffering, good. But for a people who willingly, knowingly, and arrogantly reject God and live any way they want, He is going to be that vengeful, wrathful God who one day, one day, whenever it is, one day, he is going to mete out that kind of punishment. Depends upon us. With Assyria and Nineveh, they are facing the wrath and the vengeance of God. Going to read just a few scriptures, uh, starting in verse 4 of chapter 1. It almost reads like a reverse of creation. God says, this is what I'm going to do when I pour out my vengeance. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. 
the Bashan and the Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon, they wither. The mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all of its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. And the very next verse says, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. It depends upon who we are as to which God they get to see because He is all of that. The justice of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the vengeance of God, the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God. He is all of those things. And the, the, the God that we see and experience depends upon how we respond to Him. Who can stand before his indignation? This is what Nahum's trying to say to Judah. Yeah, they look powerful. They got the massive armies. They got all the chariots, the swords and spears. They got it all. They've got all this wealth. They're filthy rich. They're a brutal people. They trample over and destroy everybody. Don't worry about it. They can't stand against me. When I raise up against them, they're going to be totally destroyed. And don't worry, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you. No matter what happens, I know those who take refuge in me. Who do we take refuge in when things are going bad? Who do we take refuge in when there's sickness or disease? Loss of loved ones. When we're going through financial pain when we're going through all of these things in this world that's around us, when we look at what's taking place, everywhere we turn, man, if we watch the news, it's nothing but bad news everywhere. Who's our refuge? Where do we turn? Do we let the world and all that's going on in it transform us into its image? Or do we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us in the image of Christ? It all depends on how we respond and who we think this God is and who we believe in, believe Him to be. He knows those who take refuge in Him. In verse 8, it says this, But with the overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight, and He will pursue His enemies into darkness. He's not going to give up. There is no escape. When judgment comes, His enemies, there's no place to hide. He is going to pursue them when judgment comes. That is why we do not want to be enemies of God. We want to be children of God, friends of God. We can be those things by simply accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, putting our faith and our hope and confidence in the death, burial, and resurrection and the promises that God has for all those who believe. If not, if we reject that, We fall into that group that are called the enemies and the adversaries of God and the wrath of God and the vengeance of God. When he finally comes back, that vengeance and wrath is eternity separated from him in hell, a place of eternal torment. There will be no place to hide as those days come. Notice the contrast between verses 6 and 7 that I just read. 
There's no place they can go. Who can stand before him? And then all of a sudden, the Lord is good. Strong tower. In Exodus chapter 34, starting in the last half of verse 6, it said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It's not just live for today and forget about what's coming. This is not the best that there is unless you're one of those who are his adversaries. For those that belong to him, this is nothing compared to heaven and his glory and his presence. But for the adversaries, this is the best there's ever going to be. 150 years have passed since the king responded to Jonah's warning. And God is now ready. What were the problems with the Assyrians? And you can read this chapter, these books, these three chapters. There's a lot of problems, but I'm going to boil it down to three quick points. One, they trusted in themselves. They didn't need God. They didn't need this God of the Jewish people. They didn't need Him. They were prospering. They were powerful. They were the most powerful army in the world, the most powerful military in the world, the wealth It was just everywhere. And if they saw something they wanted, they just took it and became more wealthy. They didn't need God. They trusted in themselves. Holds true today, just like it did back then. Where people prosper. No matter how bad it may be and how much evil there might be, as long as it prospers, who needs God? That's why in America, sometimes it's the hardest place to evangelize because who needs God? Even the poorest of our poor have more than most of the world. But where they have nothing, God is everything. The second thing I think that we saw when you go through this, as you read it, they had absolutely no respect for human life whatsoever. You can read verses in there that talks about the brutality of the Assyrians. It was legendary. In chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says this, Woe to the bloody city, Nineveh, completely full of lies and pillage. Their prey never departs. They never run out of prey. They They never stop destroying people. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. And because of the many harlotries of the harlot and the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries, behold, I am against you, declared the Lord of hosts. And if you would want to read some history about the brutality of the Assyrians, you can find it in history books. They were brutal. Just about anything that you can imagine, they would do to other people and other humans. And as we talked about even last week with the other groups of people, it was common to sacrifice even children to idols, false gods. Human life meant nothing you're probably already making some connections to our world today, our culture today. Proud people, we don't need God. Human life, we've 
aborted over about 70 million babies that they know of. Murder rates are soaring. Children killing children. Violence is everywhere. The third reason would be rampant wickedness and evil. Evil is glorified. Violence is glorified. I mean, look at the violence that is on our televisions and then my understanding is in all so many video games, you, you get extra points for the number of people you kill. This is what our kids are putting into their heads hours at a time. The movies, the evil movies, the slasher movies, all of these things are glorified. And we wonder why our culture is becoming more and more demonstrating a total lack of respect for human life. It means nothing. We become hardened to it. Last part of the verse I read says, God won't acquit the guilty. What about us? You know, there used to be, and I don't, it seems to be waning in the last few years, but as Americans, man, we didn't have to worry about anything. Why? Because we are the most wealthy and the most powerful nation on the planet. You don't want to pick a fight with us because we can destroy you. Our armies, our navies, all of our armed forces, the weapons that we have, we don't have to worry about anything. Our identity as a nation was wealth and power. Sounds like the Assyrians. Wealth and power. The danger lies, as I said earlier. We can become like the Assyrians if we're not careful. Even the church, even Christians, we can be transformed by the world around us instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us. We begin to think like the world. We begin to act like the world and we begin to live like the world. And the Assyrians... We don't need their God. We worship our gods. And look at how we're prospering. Look at how we're rich. Look how we're powerful. Look how we can conquer anybody. Our gods are every bit as good, must be better than their God. What are our gods? What are we worshiping in this nation? We think that a God's going to put up with it forever. The message of these minor prophets, they're eternal. They still make sense to us. But boy, was there good news. It doesn't sound like it when you focus on Assyria. But when you focus on what God has to say for his people, in this case, Judah. In Judah 1, verse 15. Nahum 1, verse 15. It says this, Behold, on the mountain, on the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Go ahead and celebrate your feast, Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though the devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. He says, don't worry, Judah. I got you. 
You're my people. I know those who love and respect me. I will protect those. You don't have anything to fear. I am your protection. Those are words that we need to be able to rely on and remember when our world is collapsing, our personal world when it's collapsing, when the things that we are facing seem like mountains that there is no way we can scale them. We need to remember, I got you. God says, I've got you. I've got your back. I've got you covered. I won't forget you. I am the one that will be with you. Judah's enemies had no chance against God. Neither does our enemy. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's evil. It's Satan. It's the devil. You don't have to be worried. The reality is the book of Nahum shows you how important it is to be on God's side. God's side. There's a quote that I'm going to have put up here from Abraham Lincoln. And this is back in the time of the Civil War. And a a reporter asked him, he said, do you think God is on your side, meaning the North? And that was Abraham Lincoln's response. I am not. My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. He's never wrong. Whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? Are we on God's side? You know, Sometimes we, we can somehow or other think that God is only on our side when we win. You know, one of my, it's a little bit of a pet peeve when I watch sporting events, and I love sporting events, and the winners always declare, God is so good. You know, I would like to think that there's somebody in the loser rocket room who's saying, God is still so good. We can almost get this mentality and be transformed in the thinking of the world that God is only good when we're feeling blessed. Well, the reality is we're always blessed depending on the way we look at things. And God is always good for those who love him. For those who love him. Abraham Lincoln had it figured out. We need to be on his side. So the book of Nahum showed us a few things. One, no matter how bad or how dark things look on the outside, God's got it. We don't have to live with a defeated attitude and this defeatism that's so prevalent because we have the promise in the Word of God that He is in control. And it's so easy to become defeated when we look around, see what's going on all around us, or when things that appear to be tragic things happen in our life, and they are tragic. But God's in control. God watches over his children. Do we believe it? He's watching over us even now. And sometimes we have this attitude that I'll feel better when I get even. Anybody ever have that attitude? I'll show them. Then I'll feel good. The reality is God says what? Vengeance is his. And if we understand that, that, that's what allows us to live out what God commands us to do. Remember that we are commanded to love our enemies? When we realize that whoever they are, whatever they've done, they're accountable to God. 
and there's going to be consequences. But we are able to live it out, the command that he has. In Romans 12, and I'll close with this verse. <clears throat> verse 19, it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I do not, do not, excuse me, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can be so free of that enemy, knowing that God's in control. And whatever justice needs to be meted out, he'll do it, not us. The big message of Nahum. Those who arrogantly ignore or resist God will taste his wrath. But those who trust him will be saved by his love. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that your wrath will not fall upon your people. The fullness of your wrath, God, you will provide a place of shelter. And you are that place of shelter. You are our stronghold. You are our strong tower. God, though all those around us may laugh, mock, or ridicule, we have our confidence in you. Knowing, God, that you are in control, that you are faithful, you are trustworthy, and that you love us. And God, forgive us if we ever have an attitude that we want to mete out vengeance or punishment. Help us by your grace to love our enemies. To show them love and mercy. Knowing that if vengeance is required, you will be the one. Because you are a just God. And we are not. I pray, God, that we are on your side. That when we fight the battles that we fight, In the Spirit, we are on your side. Help us to live and walk by faith, not by sight, knowing who you are and what you promise us. Lord, if we go our separate ways now, I pray you would bless us, watch over us, keep us in the palm of your hand. The Holy Spirit, don't let us get off track. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us in the area we need comfort. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Father, I pray you would, by your Spirit, give each and every one of us here the boldness of these young people that stood up here this morning. The boldness to share Jesus with those that we would meet. Give us the sensitivity to hear your Holy Spirit speak because you're always speaking. I pray as we go, God, we go as your ambassadors this morning. Spreading the good news. Increasing the kingdom. All for your glory. We ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.